For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Lung cancer is the second most common cancer in both men and women in the United States. However, it is by far the most common cause of cancer deaths, accounting for almost one quarter of all deaths from cancer in the U.S. Fortunately, the number of patients being diagnosed with lung cancer has been falling over the past 30 years, primarily due to declining rates of cigarette smoking. Even so, well over 200,000 Americans are expected to be diagnosed with lung cancer in 2021, making the malignancy a continued public health challenge. Recent advancements in the treatment of patients with advanced disease have significantly changed the prognosis for many. An expanded lung cancer screening has enabled us to diagnose and treat a number of patients at an earlier stage. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner medical oncologist, Dr. Suma Sadi, and thoracic surgeon, Dr. Brian Pettiford, to learn more about the diagnosis and subtypes of lung cancer, what treatment options are available to patients, and how to screen and reduce risk for developing the malignancy. So welcome, Dr. Sumasadi and Dr. Brian Pettiford to the show. I really appreciate you both taking the time to come on and discuss this important topic with us. So why don't we start with uh, Dr. Pettiford. Can you tell me just little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, your training, and how you got to be uh, in New Orleans. Sure, Jonathan. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to uh, participate in this program. Um, I'm a Georgia native, native of Tifton, Georgia, small town in South Georgia. Um, I um, was educated in the public school system there and uh, went on to Morehouse College, um, where I um, was a biology pre-med major. Uh, then went way up north to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that's where I went to medical school and um, received all of my um, surgical training. Um, stayed on there for about five years and then uh, moved to the central part of the state uh, for another five and a half years uh, prior to coming down here to the Auctioner Medical Center. Uh, my uh, focus is um, general thoracic surgery uh, with a primary concentration in uh, thoracic malignancies, particularly lung cancer. All right. Well, uh, I know Tifton. I didn't know you were from there because uh, wow. I'm from I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. And on our drives to Atlanta, we used to oh I seventy five. Yes, it would say think Tifton. Stop <laughs> stop there for for gas and a bite to eat. Yeah. <laughs> and Dr. Sadi, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm th very thankful for being here. This is very exciting, and I'm hoping that patients really get some good use out of it. I am originally from India and uh, never had any plans to move here. However, I did end up here doing my training in Ashna, New Orleans, and ended up staying. And that's where I've been since 2003. Thank you for having me. So let's start with a pretty general question, and I'll, I'll ask uh, you, Dr. Pettiford, this question. How would you describe lung cancer? So you have patients who often see you 
you know, right when they're diagnosed or the suspicion of the diagnosis? How do you describe it to them? Do you talk about different subtypes? Uh, what, what's your definition of lung cancer? Sure. Uh, I try to uh, make sure that I create some degree of understanding for my patients. And so I once I inform them that they have a diagnosis of lung cancer, I tell them there are two broad categories, um, non-small cell and small cell. And that the non-small cell variety uh, accounts for most of the uh, cases of lung cancer, somewhere on the order of 80 to 85 percent of um, cases. And even though uh, many of these patients are devastated with their diagnosis, uh, most of them have the non-small cell variety. And I tell them, hey, this is actually much better than having small cell, uh, just because of the way that small cell lung cancer um, behaves and is uh, treated. Uh, And so once I inform them of which um, broad uh, category of lung cancer they have, then I get into the meat of exactly which uh, subtype subtype and what we're going to do uh, in terms of um, staging them. And and I reassure them that uh, our team, uh, the entire team, um, be it the surgical team, uh, medical and radiation um, therapy um, uh, teams, we will all uh, be there uh, each step of the way. All right. And among those non-small cell lung cancer subtypes, we have, you know, adenocarcinoma, which makes up the the most common of the non-small cell lung cancers. And then, you know, the second most common would be the squamous cell carcinomas. And like you said, that's differentiated from small cells. That's the first big divider. So Dr. Pettiford, I'll I'll ask you this question as well, is what are kind of the broad categories of risk factors that we know of uh, for developing lung cancer? Sure. Uh, The biggest uh, risk factor is cigarette smoking. Uh, and it's a tragedy. And, and I will um, expound upon that whenever I speak with my patients, especially if I know that they have a um, smoking history, history, especially if they are actively smoking. You know, I'll tell them that lung cancer was basically, un, basically unheard of uh, up until um, the um, 20th century. Uh, there's the old story of how a medical school class in the early 1900s uh, back when the uh, the uh, anatomy classes were held in a, uh, an auditorium, they had a uh, cadaver that had lung cancer, and the instructor told them, "Hey, uh, told the students, hey, take a look at this. You will probably never see that again." Boy, was that individual wrong! Hmm. And so I informed them that, "Hey, the overwhelming majority of lung cancer is attributable to cigarettes." And so um, I say that to them and and I uh, package it not in an in a, a uh, judgmental or accusatory fashion I pose it to them in a, a way of saying hey I want you to use this as motivation to stop smoking especially uh, those individuals who come in and are actively uh, smoking right so we know like you said cigarettes are the predominant cause yes. there are some other yeah, risk absolutely. factors that make up kind of a minority of cases can you touch on some of those sure well there's something called you know obviously secondhand smoke there's even thirdhand smoke um, um, as well as uh, radon and, and and as you go further down uh, the risk factor tree uh, those risk factors are less likely to um, um, cause uh, cigarette uh, lung cancer directly now there is one thing um, asbestos exposure. Uh, it can kind of work synergistically uh, with um, cigarette smoking to uh, cause uh, lung cancer. And so a lot of people, unfortunately, um, due to lifestyle choices, um, smoked, but also may have worked around asbestos. Right. And going back a little bit to cigarette smoking, and, and the numbers kind of spell out that 80 to 90 percent of patients with lung cancer are, we think are caused by cigarette smoking. But 
that leaves about 10 to 20% of a, of a pretty common cancer that isn't caused by cigarette smoking. So, you know, a lot of times there's this maybe stigma around being diagnosed with lung cancer, like somehow this is my fault. This is something I brought upon myself. And, and we know that tobacco is an addictive substance. So, you know, fault is not something we're talking about here, but there's a good portion of patients who really didn't have that risk factor. Um, so I think taking away that stigma of being diagnosed with lung cancer, particularly for patients who never smoked, I think is really important and something that I think we should be advocating for on the medical side of things too. I agree. Okay, Dr. Sadi, uh, let's talk a little bit about signs and symptoms of lung cancer. How do these patients often come to their physicians or urgent care or emergency room? What are they complaining of? So typically patients present with cough being the most common symptom can be dry cough or it can be cough associated with uh, mucus production. Sometimes they have bleeding in their uh, cough. It's called hemoptysis typically. Weight loss and loss of appetite are some general symptoms we see. Shortness of breath is another uh, symptom. A lot depends on what stage they're presenting. I know we're going to talk about staging later, but a lot of times patients present with symptoms are also more advanced at presentation. And uh, we'll talk about screening later, but our hope is to catch these patients early enough before they have symptoms so we can actually do curative um, procedures and treatments for them. But yes, they can present in multitude of ways. If uh, it spreads to the brain, they can present with uh, headache, uh, seizures, um, have vision loss, vision changes. If it spreads to the back, they can present with back pain. Uh, some uh, small cell lung cancers have something called a paraneoplastic syndrome, which can be a neurologic or a hormonal way of the cancer causing symptoms. And oftentimes, the hormonal ones do get better when we treat the lung cancer, uh, but not so common with non-small cell lung cancer, except maybe calcium elevation that we see sometimes with squamous cell type of lung cancer. Yes, oftentimes when patients present with symptoms, they're at least a stage three or a stage four, at least a two. So we want to try to catch them in stage one. I know we'll go get to that later on in staging, but that's the goal of uh, CT screening for these patients. Absolutely. So how are we diagnosing these patients, Dr. Pettiford? What are we looking for? How are these patients, once, you know, maybe they have symptoms, maybe they don't, um, what's the diagnostic techniques we use in both establishing a diagnosis and then working them up as to far, how far it has progressed or spread? Sure. Uh, as I uh, get into answering that question, uh, those questions, I would certainly like to reflect upon um, something that Dr. Asadi mentioned. Many of these patients, when they present with symptoms, that often um, indicates a more advanced uh, disease. Uh, unfortunately, that's the majority of patients, and I think that presents us with a major opportunity uh, to have a positive impact on the outcome. Uh, so if these patients are diagnosed at an earlier stage when they're not having symptoms, uh, we uh, can hopefully achieve a better success rate, uh, certainly a, a better chance to cure. Uh, with respect to diagnosis, um, those patients who come in for maybe um, uh, some type of orthopedic procedure, they get a, a preoperative chest x-ray and the uh, spot is found incidentally, or maybe they're involved in a car accident and a spot on their lung is found incidentally, are those individuals who will have the uh, best outlook uh, because they often have uh, the cancer at an early stage. Um, so um, that is one approach. The other approach is to um, get a more detailed uh, picture. Uh, so if you have a spot on an x-ray or if you come in with symptoms and there's an abnormality on an x-ray, that will be followed up with a uh, CAT scan. And a CT scan, I 
frequently described to my patients as a very detailed uh, picture of their uh, body cavity, whatever body cavity of interest uh, we ha- we're uh, focusing on. In our case, obviously, it's the chest. So it gives us a nice detailed picture of the lungs and all the other structures inside the chest cavity. Now, that just gives us a picture. So we need to kind of figure out, okay, there's a spot there. Um, is anything happening in that spot? And so we follow that up with a PET scan. And that tells us that, hey, um, maybe there's some type of activity going on in the spot. It may not necessarily tell us what that activity is, um, but it tells us that, hey, you know what? Um, this thing is active. Maybe we need to figure out what's going on. Uh, it could be uh, an area of infection. It could be an area of inflammation, or it could be a cancer. So the x-rays, uh, be it a chest x-ray, CT scan, or PET, only um, raises the suspicion. We need to confirm that suspicion, and that often involves uh, some form of a biopsy. And um, there are various types of uh, biopsy procedures. Uh, commonly performed biopsy procedures, a CT-guided biopsy, and that's where you're taken to the radiology department. You undergo another CAT scan, and under guidance, uh, the radiology doctor is able to um, precisely insert a small needle into uh, the area of interest and obtain tissue. Uh, Another approach is a procedure called an endobronchial ultrasound. You might hear it referred to as an EBUS, and that's where a lung specialist, um, an internal medicine doctor called a pulmonologist, uh, will go in with a scope uh, that has an ultrasound probe, similar to what happens when a a pregnant uh, female uh, goes in to have the baby checked. This ultrasound probe can look through structures, and they can often, using this, uh, biopsy uh, a spot in the lung. There are more invasive procedures, and that's where I come into uh, play. Uh, One is called a mediastinoscopy, and that just involves inserting a small scope into the base of the neck to uh, sample uh, tissue uh, from inside the chest cavity. And then there's another procedure called a VATS, and that's similar to what orthopedic surgeons do when they do knee scopes. The only difference is that we're doing it in the chest cavity, and we insert a small scope into the chest and uh, take samples of uh, whatever target tissue um, we're interested in. Great. So once we have this biopsy, we get a diagnosis of lung cancer, be it small cell, non-small cell. The staging is a little bit different, but I want to talk a little bit about staging. So these tests can help us provide a stage for a patient. And we usually stage from stage one, kind of the earliest stage, to stage four being the the most distant spread of the cancer to another part of the body. We do these CAT scans, PET scans. We often get a brain MRI. Um, and then we do these other invasive procedures, like you mentioned, this endobronchial ultrasound, maybe a mediastinoscopy, different procedures to try to evaluate the lymph nodes. In general, can you walk me through a brief overview of what a stage one stage two, stage three, stage four, uh, what that means? Sure. And I'll explain it similar uh, to the way that I explain it to my patients. So if you come in and you have a spot in the upper part of your right lung, and it's all of your x-rays, your CAT scan, your PET scan only indicates that there's a, it's the um, cancer is in that small spot. Uh, that's stage one. Now, if some of those cancer cells that are living in that small spot, and we'll call that small spot a house, if they decide that they want to hop into a car and drive around the block or to the other side of the city, then that's stage two, okay? If they decide that they want to drive over to the next town, um, um, then that's stage three. That's uh, the cancer cells have now kind of moved uh, toward the central part of the chest. And if they decide that they want to go out of the state, uh, maybe drive over to Alabama, 
um, or Florida, then that's stage four. It means that they've driven a far distance away from home. And obviously, um, there are implications for uh, not only the treatment um, pro- approach, but also the patient prognosis. So, so that's kind of how I uh, describe uh, the tumor node and uh, metastasis uh, staging. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. I might steal that for some of my other <laughs> patients that I treat. Great. So let's talk a little bit about small cell lung cancer. It's, it's so different than how we treat, how we stage, how we look at non-small cells that I think it deserves a little bit of time. So Dr. Sadi, I'll kind of pose this to you. Talk me through a little bit about the generalities of how we look at the staging of small cell lung cancer and just broad strokes how we approach treatment to patients with that disease. So small cell lung cancer is a completely different uh, animal than non-small cell lung cancer. Most of the time, it presents more in an extensive stage, which means that it has spread outside the same side of the chest, either to the other lung or all over the body. And most of the time, that's because it grows very quickly and it's very fast at spreading. So a lot of times, by the time patients seek care, they are more extensive. Very often, very less times do we catch it in a more limited stage where it's limited to one side of the chest. So we typically don't use the same classification that Brian was referring to. It's called the TNM staging for a small cell. We use the VA staging for small cell, and it's basically limited stage or extensive stage. Most of the time, small cell, when it's caught, obviously it's very widespread, and so surgery is almost never an option. There are cases that we do it in very early stage, but that requires an extensive workup with endobronchial ultrasound, mediastinoscopy to make sure it is stage one. But that's an exception to the rule. Typically, when patients come to us, about 80% of them are extensive stage. And extensive stage can mean that the cancer has spread to the other lung, bone, brain, adrenal gland, liver, some of the organs that it spreads to. So we typically start them on chemo. It's a double chemo agent that we do, and uh, usually it's platinum or etoposide. And there is now data adding immunotherapy to that setting, so we combine that. It's a triplet treatment, and we give out four cycles, four treatments of it, and then keep them on immunotherapy maintenance. Um, And that's just for best control. If they progress on that, we go to something else. So there's really no cure in that setting. And there are lines of treatment. Um, Survivals are better now than they have been three years ago before the uh, onset of immunotherapy, but it's still not great. So that's important discussion to have with the physician when they get diagnosed with extensive stage small cell because it's any cancer is a life-altering decision, but extensive stage small cell is a very life-altering decision. Um, There is not much role for radiating the brain as uh, small cell likes to go to the brain. Over 50% ends up in the brain. Um, So we don't radiate the brain typically in an extensive stage small cell. Now, limited stage is different. We still hope to cure it. So we catch it about 20% of the time, and we treat that with the combination treatment of chemo and radiation. So they get typically four treatments of chemo and then six weeks of radiation, kind of like an overlap. And once that's done, if the cancer hasn't gone anywhere else, then they can get prophylactic brain radiation, which means radiating before the cancer gets to the brain. And that does cause improvement in survival. So that is something that is recommended uh, for small cell. But again, any patient that comes to me with a small cell diagnosis, I discuss with them certain terminology other than limited stage, extensive stage. One of the things we discuss is something called a chemosensitive disease, which means that the treatment will work, 
It can still come back, but the treatment will work. But then there is this whole group called chemorefractory where you're giving the chemo and the cancer is growing. So it's very important for patients to understand that terminology and wrap their head around it because this is um, this is something that the more they know when they start, the better the expectations are and the better the outcome is. Right. Obviously, talking about lung cancer is a very challenging disease, but small cell in particular is, is quite challenging for the reasons you mentioned. And until we had that addition of immunotherapy to our arsenal, it helps. Yeah. It's not a huge game changer, but it helps. You know, we really hadn't seen much progress in the treatment of small cell lung cancer in, in, in many, many years. So that was a, a welcome addition to our um, our armament. Yeah. So before the advent of small uh, immunotherapy, we would give chemotherapy four to six cycles typically and stop, knowing fully well that this is going to come back. And it can come back anytime in that first scan at the two, three month time to any time. So having immunotherapy gives you that extra step where you kind of can do the maintenance option where you can keep them on something at least to prevent the disease from coming back too quickly. Right. Let's put small cell to the side for a second and go back to kind of the more common type of lung cancer, non-small cell. And we'll start at the early stage. So Dr. Pettiford, talk me through a patient you see who you feel is an early stage. You see maybe an isolated mass, plus or minus some enlarged lymph nodes. What's your approach surgically, what can you do, and and how do you evaluate to see if those lymph nodes, if those those people who have borrowed the car and, and gone uh, around the neighborhood, you know, if that's that's uh, applicable to them? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, we don't make the decisions in a vacuum. We always um, make those uh, decisions about who's a surgical surgical candidate and who's not uh, in a multidisciplinary fashion. Um, so. If we had concerns about lymph node uh, involvement, we would send them for a procedure like an EBUS uh, where the scope is placed in the windpipe uh, and sample the lymph nodes. If those lymph nodes are negative and we feel that the disease, those cancer cells have not left the house, uh, if the car is still parked in the driveway, uh, we will um, make sure that their heart and lungs are okay um, and such that they can tolerate the surgery. We'll take them to the operating room. We typically will perform a uh, minimally invasive surgery. It's called a robotic surgery. Uh, and right now, for uh, early-stage lung cancer, uh, about 92% of our surgeries are performed robotically for stage 1 and stage 2 disease at, at the Oxford Medical Center. Uh, at the time of the surgery, uh, the current standard of care, by the way, is to perform a lobectomy. That's where you take out the entire lobe. So on the right side, you have three lobes. On the left side, you have two lobes. And I like to speak in analogies. So on the right side, I always tell my patients, it's like a three-story house. The left side is a two-story house. And so depending upon what um, story or floor of that house uh, the uh, cancer is located in, it will come out. There are some exceptions. Sometimes the person might have an extremely small cancer, and it may be located in the periphery of the lung, or they might have some kind of some risk factors, maybe uh, some underlying heart or lung disease that would um, – strongly suggest that we not take out that entire lobe and we'll perform uh, what we call a segmentectomy. And I tell my patients, instead of taking out the whole floor, we're going to take out a bedroom and a bathroom. And we do all of that with the uh, robot. And the other thing that we do at the time of the surgery is that we need to really know whether or not that 
uh, those cancer cells have traveled anywhere. So we perform something called a lymph node dissection. And that's where we go in and dissect lymph nodes at specific areas, specific regions within the lung. Um, And uh, we send all of that to the pathology lab to be analyzed, and it gives us a stage. Now, taking out those lymph nodes is nothing about doing the lymph node removal that's going to make the patient better. The entire purpose of taking out the lymph nodes is to give us an accurate idea about the stage of the cancer. Okay. And Dr. Sadi, how do you decide, you know, they come to you potentially or Dr. Pettiford sent them to you after their surgery. How do you decide whether that patient needs anything else done? Are they done with their treatment? Is there something you can do afterwards in the way of what we call adjuvant therapy to try to reduce the chance the cancer comes back? How do you make that decision? So first of all, a very good lymph node dissection is the key. So all the stations have to be done, which would be different levels, like as Brian was describing, the car driving around the block. We want to make sure that sufficient blocks have been traveled, or we at least know how far this has traveled. We're getting a lot of mileage out of this metaphor. (laughs) So we want to make sure that we know whether the cancer is still in the lymph nodes of the lung or it has gone more into the middle, which would be the mediastinum. Sometimes, despite best procedures with EBUS and all that, you still might find microscopic disease in the mediastinum. So all of that goes to the pathologist. The pathologist puts it under the microscope and gives us a stage. And we put that into stage one, two, or three, depending on, there's some surprise threes, but most of them, when the surgeons go in, you're trying to find a one or a two. It's always that surprise uh, stage three. But typically, stage one or a two is what gets sent to us. The tumor is really small. When I say small, less than four centimeters, we don't really offer anything. If there's some high-risk features of poorly differentiated histology, over four centimeters, lymph node positive, so hilar lymph nodes, which is a fancy term for lymph nodes within the lung, if they're positive, the patient would get adjuvant chemotherapy. Not much role for radiation post-op. Actually, no role for radiation post-op unless there's positive margins or something, but that's a case-by-case discussion. The other thing I wanted to add is a lot of these cases get presented at the multidisciplinary tumor board, which is extremely helpful. We can put all our brains together to come out with the most comprehensive plan for the patient. Great. And we'll be highlighting our multidisciplinary team a little bit later, too, but absolutely vital. So let's talk about someone who up front we know through some of our diagnostic testing that has a stage three lung cancer. So we have lymph nodes in the middle of the chest and the mediastinum that are positive, uh, either by endobronchial ultrasound with biopsy, mediastinoscopy, obviously on PET scan, something like that, that tells us. So how are we approaching treatment to those patients, Dr. Sadi? Yeah. So typically, stage three is the gray zone. So you either have patients that you don't know you're surprised or you find the patients, just like you're saying, where there's a big tumor blocking off something major or big lymph nodes in the mediastinum, which is the middle of the chest. They typically fall into the unresectable group. So those are, they don't even go to the surgeon. We know that you're not going to be able to clear this with surgery. So those patients come to us. And when they see us, typically in forever, for 20 years of uh, lung cancer treatment, they were getting chemo radiation followed by maybe chemo, no chemo, but no improvement in survival. But it's a combined chemo radiation approach, which takes about six weeks. And after that, if the patient has not progressed, there's one drug, only one drug in that setting that should be offered if the patient qualifies for it, and that's a drug called Infemse. It's the only one that has NCCN recommendation for a stage three lung cancer after definitive chemo radiation. Definitive chemo radiation is a fancy word when you're chemo radiating and not planning to operate after that. And then you give them Infemse, which is immunotherapy 
which goes on for a year after that, significantly reduces the chance of the cancer coming back and also the overall survival. They actually just came up with their five-year data in ASCO recently, so they still meet their overall survival uh, requirement. Really no contraindications for that as long as patient can come to treatment, and it's very well-tolerated, the whole treatment. Chemoradiation can be a little tough. Sometimes we um, cannot give patients combined treatments because they're too sickly or weak. In those situations, we sometimes do chemo first and then do radiation. But ideally, if a patient qualifies, we would like to do combined treatment and then move on to the immunotherapy setting. Right. So that Dervalumab Mfinzi medication really has helped move the needle uh, in terms of these stage three patients. Finally, yes. Uh, which is a much needed addition right. uh, to what we can offer them. Yeah. We never had any survival benefit for anything we could do post-chemo radiation. And patients used to progress very quickly, too. Mm. If we had 10 patients, eight would come back within for two years with the recurrence. So having this drug has really helped the patients a lot. Moving on to stage four disease. So just to redefine where we are with stage four, this means the cancer has spread beyond the lung, beyond the lymph nodes into a usually a distant organ is typically how we define stage four. Now, which organ, where it goes... It's variable from patient to patient. Could be the brain, could be the adrenal glands, could be the liver, could be the bone. It could be a cancer that's spread from one lung to the other lung. Uh, that also defines stage four. So talk me through, Dr. Sadi, since most of the time your people in our field, the medical oncology field, are the first ones seeing these patients, or maybe they've relapsed after they had you know, uh, met with Dr. Pettiford previously, but uh, what are the first things you're discussing, tests you're running on these patients? So, yes. So when stage four patients come to us, they come in different settings. Some of them that have had surgery and adjuvant, and now they're stage four, and some of them are newly diagnosed stage four. So once we confirm the diagnosis, which is they get a biopsy like we discussed earlier, and could be many ways of getting the biopsy. And once we have confirmed that it is small cell or non-small cell, small cell we treat like we discussed earlier, the non-small cell is a whole different ballgame. So these patients have many, many treatment options. And we, as we discussed histology earlier, 80% are adenocarcinoma, 20% are squamous. There's always going to be a few that they can't tell, which are so poorly differentiated. But typically, they fall into one of these groups. Then what we do when we find out that is we have something called a reflex testing, which we offer at Ashner. I'm sure different hospitals have different ways of doing it. But we typically send off for molecular profiling. And we have a bunch of tests that we do, which, which will be targeted treatments, which will help us decide if this patient has a target. For example, some of the targets that we check for, one is EGFR mutation, which seems to be the most common out of the patients that they have. But if they have that, there are drugs approved by mouth, pills by mouth, oral chemotherapy that you can give. And those patients don't even need to go on IV chemotherapy. So there's different targets like that. There's EML, ALK, there's ROS, there is BRAF, there is HER2, there is KRAS, there's all kinds of targets. Then we also do something called a PDL1 testing. Um, that's to help us with the immune part of the treatment. What does that mean? So not all patients can get targeted treatment. You have to have a target to get the targeted treatment. So you first have to make sure they don't have that. Because if they don't have the target, then we go on to the next phase, which is the combination treatment 
of either chemo, immunotherapy, or just immunotherapy by itself. And we decide that based on the PDL1 level, which is a marker, immune marker level, which tells us what's the status of the immune cells in the background then we can that utilize to kill the cancer cells. So we're basically activating the patient's immune system to kill the cancer cells. The most important take home is that that's not a treatment option for patients who have a target. So the targeted patient should be treated with biologic or targeted treatment. This is for patients who don't have any of that. So it's very vital to make sure you rule that out. So reflex testing is important because when the patient comes to us, they want to know when they are starting treatment. So if I don't even have the results of the molecular profile, it becomes a tough decision to decide what's best for the patient. So that's why we have the reflex testing. So Brian gets the pathology or, or pulmonary gets the pathology. Our pathologists send it off, takes about two weeks, goes to Mayo Clinic from Ashner, and when it comes in, I have the treatment plan. Right. To summarize, and that was a great explanation, is that we have three kind of buckets of treatment options. We have, and sometimes we can combine them, but... Uh, we have targeted therapy, which most often are oral pills, and um, those only work if you have a mutation target. So that's something that we want to know off the bat reflexively if you have one of those targets. If you don't have one of those targets, on the table also is chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Most patients, if you don't have a target, we're going to use a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. There are some select patients who may be eligible for immunotherapy alone based on that PDL1 testing. Is that an accurate summation? Correct. Yes. Okay. So I we have something. new data coming out, you know. Patient asked me last night. He said, "Oh, I, I saw the ad of this drug and what do you know about that drug?" So, so there's different combinations. Different drug companies are coming up with different combinations. But it's safe to say that they'll be offered a combination chemo doublet with immunotherapy or Sometimes they qualify for just immunotherapy by itself. Yes. And we typically base it off, off of the PDL1 testing. Right. And knowing these answers before you start on treatment is crucial because there may be treatments that are both better tolerated and more effective for you. Correct. So having some, you know, it's easy for us to say preach patients, uh, and it's harder to do when you're the other one sitting in the exam room uh, with the anxiety of a new cancer diagnosis. But making sure that we kind of check these boxes as, as quickly as possible, of course, uh, but as exhaustively as possible to make sure we're doing the right, safest, and most effective thing for the patient. There's always gray zones. You see a patient, you don't have the molecular profile, and you're like, what do I do? You can't wait for three weeks on the patient. In those situations, we typically just start with the IV chemo while waiting for the test to come back. Because at the end of the day, you want to make sure the patient is not sitting there with their symptoms too long, you know, going through the side effects and everything. Of course. Great point. Let's move on a little bit and talk about clinical trials. That's something that is not unique to Ashner, but certainly we push for a lot here to try to push beyond what we can do with our conventional therapy to try something that works better. So if either of you guys can speak to any clinical trials that are in the space, either in the early stage lung cancer or in later stages of lung cancer that we're uh, working on here at Ashner, that you know if that's exciting even outside of Ashner. So we have one trial for stage three setting. Stage one? At stage one, uh, there have been trials uh, comparing um, surgery to um, ablative therapy like um, uh, SBRT, which is a form of radiotherapy. Unfortunately, the enrollment uh, for those trials has been, um, it's been difficult to get patients enrolled. So um, the trials that I know of, uh, they have closed uh, due to um, uh, challenges with uh, patient enrollment. Uh, extensive in a, a small cell, we do have early stage, uh, limited stage trials where we are adding immunotherapy to the chemo radiation combination. So that's one trial. So if you catch a patient 
it's uh, it's actually pretty decent because they don't they know that small cell grows fast so typically when we pick a trial for small cell we don't want to wait and send all these tests and delay the patient's treatment so this trial lets you give the first cycle of chemo and then you can incorporate radiation and immunotherapy and all that for second cycle so great design it's yeah. a great design so it's infimzy is the drug that it's using on that um, then we have a stage 3 trial also utilizing immunotherapy in the earlier setting like instead of uh, consolidation or after chemo radiation trying to do it sooner we have a whole host of stage 4 trials um, both in the uh, in the stage uh, phase 3 program as well as a phase 1 program The bottom line is there's a lot of trials. So any time a patient comes to us, and these trials keep closing and opening, as we know, any time a patient comes to us, we see what's the standard of care, and we always look at the trial packet to see what the patient can can be offered, and then discuss that with the patient to figure out what's the best for this patient. Right, and there's even you know some data that's come out of other centers of. using immunotherapy before surgery. So an earlier stage preoperative also. Yeah, yes. neoadjuvant immunotherapy mm-hmm. um and seeing if you can kind of induce an immune response before even taking them to surgery and then when you take them to surgery you can see hey how much tumor is left here. Correct. Um so there are a lot of novel approaches being taken to how we can improve upon you know what we can offer uh, today in 2021. Yeah, even in we're not discussing head and neck but that's what's head and neck is moving to like a neoadjuvant immunotherapy approach. Next we'll move to our recurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk? So, Dr. Petterford, what can I do to decrease my risk of getting lung cancer? First and foremost, uh if you are a smoker, stop smoking. And listen, I know that that is not an easy proposition. Um there are some studies that indicate that it is as difficult if not more difficult to uh, stop a smoking habit than it is to kick an opioid habit. Uh so it's it's an addiction. Uh and I know it's uh, difficult, but if you stop smoking, it can uh certainly uh, lower your risk of lung cancer. Uh it can also um lower your risk of other uh conditions such as um heart attack and stroke. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's some evidence that um if if you stop smoking within 5 years, if I'm not mistaken, your risk of stroke almost approximates that of someone who has never smoked. Uh, so there are some benefits. I think that um screening by far uh will make a major impact if we can take advantage of the lung cancer screening uh programs that are out there and, in- and interestingly the United States uh, Preventative Services Task Force uh earlier this year reduced um the requirements. Uh, it used to be that uh, the age requirement was uh, a an age of at least 55 years. Now it's been reduced to 50 years. So if you're 50 years or older and have smoked uh for one pack per day for 20 years or more then you can qualify for a low dose screening CT. And I just further want to emphasize the importance of screening. So I was reading some statistics that showed that only 2 to 4% of patients who are by those guidelines eligible to receive screening for lung cancer. And all this is is a low dose CT scan. So we try to minimize the amount of radiation we're giving to those patients. Only 2 to 4% of eligible patients in the United States are are getting that screening. And contrast that with uh mammograms. So over 70% of patients who are eligible for screening for mammograms are getting their mammograms and and that's wonderful and that's kudos to folks for getting their mammograms and doctors reminding of that. But just shows that there is this huge gap and whether that's from the patient side or or healthcare provider side that we're not emphasizing it enough, but we know from large studies that low dose CT scanning can reduce the risk of dying from lung cancer. Uh so it's hugely important and um you know thanks for bringing it up and I just really want to emphasize that point. 
Also, I'll make the point a little bit about smoking. And thankfully, the smoking rates in the U.S. have gone down. Uh, even over the last 10 years, uh, in, in men, uh, there's been a 7% decrease in the rates of cigarette smoking. Still about a third of men in the United States have smoked or are smokers. And a 15% decline in, in women smoking in the last 10 years or so. So so those rates are obviously encouraging. And we'll reduce, reduce the numbers of, of lung cancer moving forward. For our next recurring segment, how do we treat at Oshner? So, Dr. Pettiford, let's start with you. How are we treating lung cancer at Oshner, specifically uh, the early stage patients? When they come to see you, what do you do with them? We have a stratified way of evaluating those patients. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a multidisciplinary approach. Even though there's a high likelihood that those patients with stage one disease will undergo surgery, we will present them in a multidisciplinary forum, which means uh, a group of physicians uh, of various specialties will discuss each patient's um, case. Uh, sometimes we'll argue, but we will eventually reach a consensus uh, that meets and or exceeds the standard of care. For stage one disease, for patients who are surgical candidates, uh, they will undergo, as I mentioned previously, either a lobectomy or a segmentectomy, and that will be done minimally invasively. Uh, typically, uh, all of our minimally invasive surgery, quite frankly, is done robotically, uh, which translates into a faster recovery. Our um, length of stay, hospital length of stay right now is around 2.3. Uh, four days. Hmm. The national average is four days, and we're at 2.4 days. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, there's a handful of patients we've operated on, and we've sent them home the next day. Wow. Uh, one patient even uh, was in the hospital for less than 24 hours after undergoing a lobectomy. Uh, so it definitely is uh, beneficial. Now, there are not everyone is a candidate, even with uh, early stage lung uh, uh, cancer. They're not candidates for surgery. Uh, maybe they are elderly, uh, someone who's 90 years old or, or someone who has underlying heart or significant lung disease, uh, or may, they might just decide they don't want to undergo surgery. Uh, and in those instances, radiation therapy is recommended. Uh, and um, there's a specific type of radiation therapy called SBRT, and it stands for Stereotactic Body Radiation Therapy. And I kind of tell my patients, it's kind of like a laser-guided missile. Uh, it hits the target and destroys that particular target with very little collateral damage to the surrounding structures, uh, as opposed to external radiation therapy. Okay. And Dr. Sadi. So we've already talked a little bit about stage three, our approach to treatment. So talk to me about you get a newly diagnosed stage four. You talk to me a little bit about the test you're ordering, but just kind of summarize that a little bit, what you're we're doing at Ashner for newly diagnosed stage four lung cancer. So stage four, once we tease out if it is non-small cell or small cell, the molecular profiling is sent off as a reflex testing. Our pathologists, have, we've, we've had many meetings over time to make sure that we're all on the same page as far as molecular profiling is concerned, because we all understand the importance of having that in hand when we see the patient. We usually see the patient pretty quickly uh, in a multi-D approach. Um, so stage threes and stage fours are often seen in conjunction with the radiation doctor if uh, there's any palliative radiation involved for stage four or definitive radiation involved for stage three. But the molecular profiling helps us decide which way we are going to go. And uh, again, cannot em emphasize how important it is to offer targeted treatment for patients who qualify for a targeted drug. If that is not an option, then we go based off of pdl one 
whether they are chemotherapy candidates or chemoimmunotherapy candidates. And obviously, if they can tolerate the treatment based on their other medical problems. Almost everyone will get an MRI brain. Even the early stages will get it uh, because um, you can have one lesion in the lung and one lesion in the brain. It's very very common for lung cancer to spread to the brain. So even our early stage patients get the brain MRI. Um, clinical trials are very important. Um, like I was saying earlier, there's no, you know, when I first started practice, there would be three trials that should be open for two years and then the other three trials would come up. But now it's a moving train. So they keep opening and closing, especially with our phase one program. So it's always better to check to see what is available for the patient, even though you're pretty sure what you're going to do on the patient, we always check and see if there's a clinical trial option and then present all that to the patient to decide what they want to do. Great. Now for our next recurring segment, what should I ask my oncologist at my first appointment? So I'm going to pose this first one to you, uh, Dr. Petford. What, when someone comes to you, what should they be asking you? What should your patient be asking you at their first appointment? Well, number one, um, what is their diagnosis? Do they even have a diagnosis? If not, uh, how will the diagnosis be made? And what type of treatment will uh, they get? Um, how does the um, uh, diagnosis type and the stage affect uh, uh, his or her treatment? Um, I would also ask, uh, if I were a patient, what type of resources uh, should I use? Um, and um, how should I go about uh, receiving my care? Uh, what uh, resources within the institution should I use? Uh, should I use a thoracic um, oncology navigator, which we have at uh, Auctioner? That's uh, almost like a quarterback uh, or an intermediary. They kind of uh, the glue that holds that patient's uh, transition through our um, our care uh, together. And so uh, those are the questions that, that I would ask. Obviously, patients want to know, well, how much time do I have? And, and, and that's, we really, um, everyone is different. Um, and uh, some patients will even say, well, look, I know of someone who had lung cancer, and this is how that person's um, uh, course went. Is that going to happen to me? To me? And so uh, we also tell our patients that, look, um, each case is uh, very unique. Um, so uh, that's what I would recommend that the patients uh, ask. And Dr. Saadi, do you have questions that you would recommend your patients be asking their oncologist? Getting diagnosed with cancer is a very complicated thing for the patient because that just is a different thing that they've never seen or heard or experienced sometimes. So our goal is to make sure that patients have a as easy a path as possible through the system. So I would ask the patient. I would ask the uh, tell the patient to if you go see the oncologist, talk to them about treatment options. Talk to them about molecular profiling for lung cancer. It's quite common knowledge now that they should be offered molecular targeted treatments. Talk to them about supportive care options available for the patients like yoga, meditation, acupuncture, palliative care, psychology. All these are very important for the patient. Just not the treatment alone everything because so that they have a comprehensive approach to their diagnosis. And to emphasize the importance of that molecular testing one more time, I was recently reading that there was a, a, a large study, that uh, a database study, that found that about a third of patients had been treated with at least one line of therapy for their stage four lung cancer, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, and had not yet been checked for uh, molecular profile. Correct. Which just shows that even though we harp on it a lot, it's not always universal. So if you want to be you know, a real advocate for yourself, it never hurts to ask the question, hey, have, has my tumor been sent for these? Have you sent my blood? Sometimes we can do blood tests to check for that. Correct. 
So it's a lot of disparity among practices across the country and the availability of molecular testing for those practices. Uh, some have, like us, reflex testing, which is a bigger centers offer that. If you're in a small practice, it's not the same. There's different pathologists working out of different hospitals. So it's not a coordinated approach, which is where the patient needs to know what to ask for. Um, yes, I've seen um, situations where, in personally, not just literature search, but patients who have been on chemo and molecular testing was never sent. Um, it happens, and, and there's two sides of the argument of why that happens, but the patients need to have the knowledge to ask for it. Right, and we know that if you take patients who are diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer, the patients who are more likely to have these driver mutations, these targetable mutations, are ones who are non-smokers. Now, that doesn't mean you're guaranteed by any means, and it also doesn't mean that if you're a smoker, you can't have a driver mutation, these targetable mutations. We know that about 40% of people with EGFR mutations, that's kind of the most common driver mutation, actually have a significant smoking history. So it's not uh, specific to either group, but this is an enriched population, the non-smokers who have non-small cell lung cancer who tend to have these driver mutations. Is that accurate? Correct. And uh, if you go back in time when um, EGFR drugs were first coming out, and we didn't even know that EGFR drugs are EGFR drugs because um, they were approved in second-line setting for lung cancer for all comers. And we used to have this panel that if you're women, you're Asian, you're adenocarcinoma, you send for it. Mm. Then it changed over time. We realized that a lot of smokers have it, men have it, mm. so it has become a more universal approach. Send on everyone, which is the reflex testing. Right. So you get a diagnosis of adenocarcinoma, you send it. Just send the whole thing. Sometimes you don't have enough tissue, and that's another gray zone. Um, you have small biopsies that you don't have. Like we were alluding to earlier, if you get a CT-guided biopsy, you get a bigger core. But sometimes they get a bronchoscopic biopsy. They, they might not have enough tissue or small amount of tissue. You can send blood tests. There's Garden360. There's different companies that do a blood test uh, for the tumor testing. Obviously, tissue is always considered important. But yes, there are options. There are ways to do molecular testing. The key is doing the testing to making sure that the patient gets the right treatment. And now for our next segment, fact or fiction? So I'm going to pose a couple different statements, and either one of you can chime in and answer. So first statement, I have never been a smoker, so I am not at risk for getting lung cancer. Fact or fiction? Fiction. Fiction. Right. So we've discussed the 10 to 20% of folks who are diagnosed with lung cancer, and it's a very common cancer, so 10 to 20% is a high number. I'm not going to do the math right now, but maybe 20 to 40,000 people are non-smokers getting diagnosed with lung cancer. Next statement, I am 65 and still smoke. If I haven't gotten lung cancer at this point, there's no reason to quit smoking now. Dr. Pettiford, why don't you address that one? Fict shun. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely false. And the last statement, I have stage four lung cancer. I've always heard that this is the deadliest cancer. There's no benefit to getting treatment. Dr. Sadi, okay. Because there's so many treatment options now. Um, if you go back 20 years, yes, that was bad. We didn't have many treatment options. Chemos were not very good. So that's a different era. Now we have, like I said, molecular testing. We are identifying patients who are living for years after their diagnosis of lung cancer. I have some EGFR mutated patients who are on year seven now, doing great. So you see that, you have to see that to believe it. Yes, patients should not give up hope. Make sure they go to the right place for their treatment, get all the right tests done, and, and mentally and physically uh, be positive about getting the treatment. Well, I think that's great 
advice we'll close with. And just want to take a chance to say thank you to Dr. Pettiford and Dr. Sadi. Uh, this was certainly informative for me, and I hope for folks who uh, are listening want to learn more about lung cancer and, and maybe patients and families and, and just people wanting to learn. So thank you for sharing your time with us and with them. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So if you or someone in your family has been diagnosed with lung cancer, I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options available. The Oshner Lung Cancer Treatment Team uses a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to treatment of patients across all stages of disease, with the latest surgical, radiation, and medical therapies to help patients not only survive, but thrive. To schedule an appointment with a cancer specialist at Oshner, go to my.oshner.org. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.